This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined once again this week by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers, back from a European vacation. Matt, I don't know how much baseball you watched while we were gone, but we're going to get you all caught up because we've got four very interesting interesting things to talk about today. Number one, Freddie Peralta. If that's a name you don't all know, you soon will because he has been shockingly good for the Milwaukee Brewers. After that, we're going to get a new four hitters who got off to atrocious starts who are now turning it around. Have you noticed that Mike Trout is great? We're going to talk about Mike Trout and also Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay, since the opener, since not the season opener, since they started using what they've termed the opener, has had the best pitching stats in baseball but maybe not for the reasons that you think. I guess, Matt, that is the first question. Did you watch any baseball while you were in Europe? Uh, not much, although it was funny. I've talked to a few folks, and you know, like I, I went, I was, I went to England for a wedding, and I was talking to a few folks about what I do, and they were oh, like, a, a couple of folks were like, oh yeah, you know, like what, I've always really wanted to go to a baseball game. Like maybe next time I'm in New York, I'll go to a game. And I was like, well, actually, <laughs> next summer in London, the Yankees and Red Sox are going to play a three game series. So like. Baseball's baseball's coming to you, which I think is really cool. Um, you know, it's over the years there's been a lot of like soccer exhibitions that have come to the U.S., but it's always an exhibition. Like it's kind of cool that like they've never had like Chelsea and Manchester United come and play a regular season game in the U.S. We're sending the Yankees and Red Sox to London to play a regular season series. That's pretty cool. I, I do think it's cool. We are sending the best teams. Um, some of the other sports have not sent their best teams, and I think that's been an issue. So hopefully, you know, Aaron Judge and Mookie Betts in England next year is going to be a big thing. I'm really excited about that one. Freddie Peralta. Freddie Peralta is a pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, he's only made four starts. He's thrown 22 and a third innings. He's not a huge name, so if a lot of people aren't familiar with him, that makes a lot of sense. He's been really, really good. His last time out against the Royals, he struck out 10 in his debut in Coors Field. He struck out 13. He has a 159 ERA. He's got 35 strikeouts to nine walks in 22 and a third innings. He is the only pitcher since 1908 to have five or more strikeouts and three or fewer hits in his first four appearances. He throws 91 miles an hour on his fastball. It makes no sense. And we're going to try to help make a, a little bit of sense. He throws a fastball that's not coming in very hard, and he throws it 80% of the time. His 80.3% four-seam usage is the third highest we have on record going back to 2008. So we looked at almost 3,000 pitcher seasons with at least 10 innings pitched as a starting pitcher. 80.3% four-seam usage is behind only Daniel Cabrera's 82% in 2008 and Tony Singrani's 82% in 2013. He is now a reliever, and Daniel Cabrera did not really find much success. So I know you maybe know the answer already, Matt, but please tell me. How does a guy who does not throw that hard, who throws his fastball almost 80% of the time, find this much success? Um, I don't know, Mike. You tell me. <laughs> I was thought, I thought maybe you'd have a, a guess. Um, deception? Yeah. Well, so Extension? Deception is a really interesting word because 
it's something that we have never really had a, a great ability to quantify, right? Like a hitter not being able to pick up the ball, I think is incredibly important. And we know that there are guys like, let's say Chris Sale, obviously he throws hard with movement, but he's got the weird funky delivery. It's sort of hard to pick it up. Uh, you can kind of get a good idea from some of these quotes, like Keon Broxton, who just got called back up from the minors, basically said this. He said, I would hate the face of that guy. He's throwing invisible fastballs up there. We've heard that word, uh, invisible fastballs used for like use Mero Petit, these guys who don't necessarily blow you away, but it's it's really, it's really difficult to pick up what they're doing. And Peralta himself says, my fastball is not like one pitch. It moves a lot. Sometimes it cuts. Sometimes it goes in. Sometimes it goes up. It's not the same pitch. That's what he said to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So we have it as one pitch because you can't really turn one fastball into five different kinds of pitches. But apparently he says it's many different pitches and the opposing hitters say it's difficult to pick up. And it is a really, really effective pitch. So far, we have 126 starting pitchers who have had at least 50 plate appearances ending on a four seam. His weighted on base average, 181, is best. Best of all of those guys, like Verlander and Sale and Kluber and all these guys who throw hard and with movement, this guy so far has the best. His 229 expected weighted on base, also the best. His 30.8% whiff rate is the fourth best behind Rick Porcello, Michael Fulmer, and Max Scherzer, just ahead of Jacob deGrom and Chris Sale. There's obviously something good here. You don't fake your way towards being on that list. And so, of course, we had to dig into this. We had to figure out why. So why is his fastball so good? It's got above average spin. Uh, it's got a spin rate of just over 2,400 RPM. That's 13th of 161 starting pitchers to throw 100. So call that the 87th percentile. That's pretty good. And as you kind of alluded to, He's got great extension, and that's not something we talk a ton about on this show, but basically it measures how far off the mound does a pitcher release the ball. You don't throw 60 feet, 6 inches. You get to kind of choose if you're throwing from 53 feet or 58 feet or whatever the case may be, and I really enjoyed this from our friends over at MLB Pipeline who write up our minor league prospect reports where Peralta was the number nine Milwaukee prospect. This is what it said before the year. Peralta makes up for being an undersized righty by generating enormous extension to the plate causing his low 90s fastball that touches 94 miles an hour to play up consistently. Now, Matt, I don't know who wrote that, but we should find them and we should give them a raise because it's always fun when the data actually matches up with the scouting report. Peralta gets off the mound. His extension is 7.2 feet on his four-seamer. That's the best of 161 starters to throw 100. The average is six feet. So right there, you can see what's happening, right? He's cutting down on the distance to the plate. That 92 mile an hour fastball plays up a little bit. Maybe the way he releases it makes it difficult for the hitters to see. I don't know if that can succeed long term, but it's worked really well so far. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Yusmero uh, Petit because, like, when I first started looking at Peralta, that was the name that came to mind for me. I remember when I back in my uh, prospect writing days, uh, I used to cover the Mets system at Baseball America, and Petit was a prospect at the time who put up huge minor league numbers, and everyone was like, they didn't really know why. Um, and obviously, it actually took Petit a while to become an effective major leaguer, and it didn't happen until he moved to the pen. But this is like the same kind of profile where, like, you look at. You know, Peralta last year in double A, 2.26 ERA. And it's like, well, he's throwing 91. Like, how do you do this? You know, and it's, it's, there's clearly something there that's, that, that hitters just have a heart, you know, the invisible fastball, as, as Broxton said. Um, there's something to that. And that was sort of what people said about Petit. And there's other been pitchers um, who sort of had that reputation as well. And it's working for him. Yeah, we, we have another metric. We haven't looked at it a lot lately. But you know, you can look at the difference between uh, perceived velocity and actual pitch velocity based on the release extension. 
and he has added almost two miles an hour to his fastball based on where he uh, releases it and what the hitters might see. It's the best of any starting pitcher. It's second only to Tyler Glasnow, uh, who's not a starter anymore, but who gets like 7.6 feet of extension. The thing, though, Glasnow is kind of a, a larger man. Freddie Peralta is eleven. So to get that much extension, he's almost like, I don't want to say he's quite Carter Caps because he's not that extreme about it, but that's sort of what this feels like. And what I didn't realize until I started looking into Freddie Peralta, I just sort of assumed he was, you know, a, a draft pick or an international free agent or whatever. Did you know that he was actually a trade from the Seattle Mariners uh, on December well, of 9th? Of course, it's the Mariners. <laughs> on December 9th, 2015, I can't remember if this was David Stearns as his first trade or it was one of the first trades. Adam Lind was traded from Milwaukee to Seattle for three prospects, one of whom became Freddie Peralta. And I imagine that is one that the Mariners might like to have back. So Freddie Peralta, is he going to stick in the Milwaukee rotation? Like The Brewers have been really good, surprisingly, but the rotation has not been strong. Like That's been their weakness, and now they've got this guy sort of out of nowhere. It definitely, I mean, it definitely changes things, and it kind of makes it really interesting for them leading up to the deadline, right? There's, there's If you had to think of a team that really should be trying to make a play for Jacob deGrom... It's the Brewers. Definitely. Um, David Schoenfeld brought the CSPN yesterday. It's like it's a it's a perfect fit for the Brewers. Whether or not they have enough to get DeGrom is another question. But like any team essentially probably could do it if they're willing to like kind of just like stack things up enough. Um, if you really believe in Peralta is suddenly like your best pitcher and think you might get Jimmy Nelson back, like maybe. But on paper, this is, team is not as good as the other teams in the National League. Certainly not the starting rotation. Whereas with DeGrom, suddenly you have to think like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is like, this team feels a little more dangerous. Yeah, if, if they don't make a trade and they don't get Nelson back, who is, who's their number one starter in a playoff series? Like Chase Anderson, I guess? He's been pretty good. Uh, I don't think it's going to be, uh, you know, anybody else. So they really should be that team that makes that trade, I would think. Uh, the problem is they just don't have a great system. Their best, you know, their best prospect, Keston here is a really good hitter, but it's like he's, just, you know, a second baseman where it's kind of unclear how how high the ceiling is. So when you start there, it's kind of hard to – this isn't like when the White Sox traded Chris Sale and got Moncada, then the number one prospect in baseball, and Michael Kopech, and, you know. And like two other guys. Like, yeah. I remember this. So yeah. it's it's a little bit of a different uh, – you know, and that's what the Mets would theoretically be looking for for DeGrom, a similar type of control, similar type of pitcher. But um, the Brewers, if there was a team that would really do, should go all out, considering they've already kind of gone, gone all out to – to build the current roster they have, it would seem to be them. I'm kind of rooting for Freddie Peralta just because I like guys who are sort of unassuming in this way. For sure. I mean, and, and them making a deal for a starter isn't mutually exclusive from Peralta being good. Right. Maybe he's part of Unless it. Unless the Mets insisted on <laughs> Peralta as part of the deal. I would like that. Uh, let's turn our attention to a couple of hitters who got off to really dreadful starts. And some of these guys, we talked about them having dreadful starts. Matt Carpenter, Kendris Morales, Paul Goldschmidt, and Manuel Margot. If you look at these guys through May 15th, only one of them, uh, Paul Goldschmidt, was hitting 213, and that was the best of any of those guys through May 15th. Uh, they were all below average hitters. You know, you look at. I Wade. can't believe Mike is uh, citing batting average. Well, I'm, I'm just surprised. Is uh... a quick shorthand <laughs> to show you how dreadful these guys all were. Believe me, we're going to get a little bit deeper than that. Uh, if you look at, say, weighted runs created plus, Paul Goldschmidt was almost league average, which for him is a disaster. Uh, Kendris Morales was absolutely atrocious. Through May 15th, he was hitting 154, 250, 275. That's a weighted runs created plus of 36, where 100 is average. Matt Carpenter was at 60. Manuel Margot was at 49. And Paul Goldschmidt was at 98. Now, since May 15th, obviously it should be a different date for each one of these guys, but that was a quick short end here. They have all been crushing the ball. Matt Carpenter is a 200 weighted runs created plus. 
Kendris Morales had a 136 weighted runs created plus. Paul Goldschmidt is at 187. Manny Margot is at 126. If you were listening to the show last week when we talked about how great Mike Trout had been the week before, I pointed out that he had the second best week of the season. Paul Goldschmidt had the best week of the season. And at the time, we made jokes while he got to face the Colorado bullpen. It's not just that. He has been crushing for a month. But we're going to start with Matt Carpenter, who we talked about at length a couple of weeks ago. And I think we came away with the, the uh, opinion that he had been slightly unfortunate in terms of uh, hitting into the shift, but also that there were some concerns about his actual peripherals. True, but at the same time, uh, if I recall, I think we discussed in the show, uh, Joe Trezza had done a story uh, where basically like the Cardinals front office, you know, where, where um, Carpenter said like basically like our quant guys came to me and were like, you're doing fine. Don't change a thing. You know, your expected your expected stats are right in line with what like we expect from you. It's going to turn around. And that's exactly what's happened. Yeah, if you look at his month-by-month month, uh, expected weighted on base and actual weighted on base, his expected stats from April, May, June, 403, 410, 422. All very, very good. All similar. His actual weighted on base in April, 267, then 400 in May, and now 445 in June. So he's gone from wildly underperforming. Uh, I think at one point he had the largest gap uh, between expected and actual in baseball to a little bit overperforming. So I wanted to figure out why that is. And by the way, he's actually up to like his career average. He's hitting 260, 364, 513, which is more or less what he does now. Yeah, I mean, if I'm actually looking at his career stats right now. Matt Carpenter is shockingly, maybe not shockingly, but like amazingly consistent. If you look at his weighted runs created plus by year since he became essentially a regular in 2012, 124, 146, 117, 139, 136, 123, and right now 137. So he's basically back to being Matt Carpenter. Yeah, and, and I think that's the exact right way to put it. Uh, what I'm looking at here, and we've got the numbers to back this up, but if you look at his season uh, beginning in the entirety of 2017 and extending to 2018, and you look at metrics like his ground ball rate, his contact rate, his zone swing rate, where they are now are pretty much exactly where they were for all of last year, except that in April there were these enormous drops in all of those metrics now is that because it was a very poorly timed cold streak and you notice these things more in april than you do in august maybe uh but just the way that these things changed you almost wonder if there was something wrong with him that we didn't know about and if you look at what's changed uh it's a little bit about ground balls right 29 percent in the first month then 24 percent, 22 percent. that's good we don't want ground balls strikeout rate hasn't really changed Hard hit rate has changed. He's hitting the ball harder, 42%, then 43%, now 52% in June. And I think a lot of this is just about being aggressive in the strike zone. In the first month of the season, he went after 50% of pitches in the zone. Second month with 52%. This month, 62%. So he's clearly being more aggressive on balls in the zone. And when he's getting to them, he's hitting them harder. He's hitting them off the ground a little more. And then, you know, we did talk about the shift kind of eating him up. And that hasn't changed that much. But if you look at his batting average on balls in play in the first month, 190 then it was 367 in each of the last two months. So I think it's a kind of a combination of being more aggressive on hittable pitches, hitting the ball a little harder, and maybe finding some more fortunate outcomes in terms of fielders against the shift, which is really all you could ask for. We never thought he was going to be uh, that unfortunate for the entire season. Unfortunately, Cardinals fans, this does not apply to Dexter Fowler. His expected weighted on base is 288. He has earned almost all of the poor performance he's got. That's not the same kind of thing as Matt Carpenter. How about Kendris Morales? I know you're going to make fun of me for talking about batting average here. As recently as June 6, he was hitting a buck 96. A lot of fans spent like the first two months of the season trying to get him released because he obviously offers no defensive value, no base running value. And if he's not hitting, he is not adding any value. He is currently number two in baseball 
on our hard hit leaderboards, minimum 100 batted balls. His hard hit rate is 57.4%. That's just behind JD Martinez and just ahead of Aaron Judge. That's really impressive. You, yeah, you could have you could have uh, you could win a lot of bar bets by uh, t- uh, telling people that uh, Morales is a higher hard hit rate than Aaron Judge. And Aaron Judge, isn't that crazy? Uh, my favorite stat we're going to have on the show today: the Blue Jays lead the majors in hard hit rate at 42.2 percent. They are number one on the road with a hard hit rate of 42.2 percent, and they are number two at home with a hard hit rate of 42.2 percent. That is basically the definition of consistency. Now, what's going on with Morales? He's a little different than Carpenter. He is always, always going to underperform his expected metrics because he's really slow. He is in the uh, eighth percentile in sprint speed. He is that high? Yeah, well, that's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, and he gets shifted a ton, the 60% of the time when he bats lefty. So he is always going to be a kind of the guy who gets hurt by the shift this year. He's got a uh, 342 weighted on base against not the shift and 289 against the shift. That's a big deal. And if you look at what's happening for him, he's actually hitting it a little less hard. If you look at, uh, we broke this down into May 15th before and after. So before his hard hit rate was 58%. Now it's down to 56.8%. So it's down a little bit. He's actually walking less from 12% to 7%. Those are not great signs. Uh, Striking out way less, 24% down to 18% and way fewer grounders, 56% in April, 44% in each of the last two months. Now, whenever we see something like this, I want to know why. What what could have possibly happened? And this is something, this is like pure speculation. I'd never heard of this until I started doing some Googling. But I saw a couple different articles saying the same thing. He took off his glasses. Yeah, You might think, now his explanation for this that I'm going to read you is amazing. Usually you'd say, oh, well, a guy put on his glasses or he got laser eye surgery or contacts or whatever. He apparently took off his glasses in the middle of the month that he had uh, he acquired glasses in spring training. Now, this is a quote from The Athletic where... This is what he says. I was actually seeing the ball too clear, too well, said Morales of hitting with his glasses on. And when you see the ball like that, you're always trying to overswing it because you see it bigger. I was ahead. I was in front at all times. I just tried to take them off and see what the difference is going to be. Now, that was, you know, the middle of May. And this is from last week. Uh, John Gibbons, the manager, says, I was telling somebody the other day, he got rid of his glasses. The glasses were screwing him up. I have no idea what to make of that. Who hits better because they can't see as well? It's like the weirdest thing in the world. Uh, that is quite an explanation. <laughs> I'm not sure um, if I'm buying it, but like, yeah, it, it's it's something. Um, yeah. I mean, yes, you are a man who wears glasses. I've had laser eye surgery. I cannot imagine going up to the plate without being able to see properly. And for years, I I, I actually yeah, because I'm now comparing myself to Gary well, Morales. Sure, but but like, for years, I played sports without my glasses on and without contacts. And then one day, I was like, you know what? Like, I'd probably enjoy this more and maybe even be better if I got contacts. So I got contacts for the express purpose of like, you know, playing sports. But hey. You should, like the next time you go to the batting cages, take 10 with the glasses on and then 10 with maybe the Maybe I'm a major leaguer. See what happens. <laughs> anyway, um, I cannot with clarity say that that is the reason why he's hitting the ball well, but it sure is a reason and the timing matches up. And um, I, I don't think Morales is going to have trade value or anything, but it's interesting to see him actually, you know, showing the production that would match up with his elite Hard hit rate. Now, Paul Goldschmidt is someone who also got off to a terrible start, and I think this is a little bit more surprising for everybody. Um, Goldschmidt, through the first six weeks of the season through May 15th, was hitting 213, 341, 373. His power was gone. And I feel like his was a little more concerning because he was pretty lousy in the last month or so of last season as well. Cost himself an MVP. That's right, which at at the time I think we kind of chalked up to yet an elbow issue. Uh, He missed some time, was trying to play through. And then he got off to a terrible start this year. Maybe there was something to do with the humidor, uh, maybe not. But if you look at his numbers since May 16th, 
He has hit 312, 409, slugged 674, a 187 weighted runs created plus. He's been fantastic. And if you look at what happened, you know, some of this is for some of these guys is about unfortunate outcomes. I don't think that's necessarily true for Goldschmidt. He was legitimately bad in May. He had a 306 expected weighted on base. That is the worst worst we've ever tracked him with. Uh, and he underperformed that. 241 was his actual number. He was legitimately great in June, a 506 expected weight on a base. That's the best we've ever tracked him with, uh, and he outperformed that a little bit, 511. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle there. He's going to get back to being regular, normal Paul Goldschmidt, um, but he had a wild swing to start the year. And if you look at his monthly numbers, he's improved in all of the things you want to see improvement in. His hard hit rate has gone from 40% the first two months to 50%. Ground ball rate has dropped from 43% the first month to 32% this month. And if you look at his swing and miss rate, especially in the zone, 26% in April, 28% in May, 16% in June. This is great. Make more contact on balls in the zone, hit them off the ground, hit them harder. I feel pretty good about Paul Goldschmidt going forward. Yeah, I mean, the the, the big thing about his overall numbers is still the, I still think the, the humidor is still a thing. And that's, I mean, I was expecting him to take a dive this year um, because I thought that like he was probably going to be victimized most by the humidor. And I mean, the scope of his season right now, his weighted runs created plus overall is 140. Last year was 142. The year before that, 133. So he's back to kind of being what he, what you expect. Although before that, before that he was above 150 for three straight years. So actually he's like, he's not quite at his peak anymore. Well, can I sidetrack that for a second? Just because I I have, Diamondbacks friends who I know are listening to this and they're yelling right now. I don't know if we can trust Weighted Runs Creative Plus this year for the Diamondbacks. That's fair because it's still using the old park factors. And That's that fair. Very much. That's fair. So maybe he is. He's maybe he is back up to like yeah. the 150, 160 range. However, if you look at his home road splits this year, they are very telling. You know, over just overall uh, at home this year, the full season, he's hitting. 201, 348, 336 at home. He's slugging 336 at home, only four home runs in 164 plate appearances. On the road, 179 plate appearances, 312, 397, 675 with 13 home runs. He's slugging 675. Despite a slow start, he's slugging 675 on the road. I don't buy that either. <laughs> <laughs> no, nor do I. But um, but we saw it, you know, in the um in the month of June, like when he like he'd been the base basically been the best hitter in June, and it's all on the road, basically. His weight, weight on base on the road is 586, which is the uh, highest among 162 players with 40 home plate appearances this month. It's 45 points ahead of Nelson Cruz, who's number two. Um, his expected weight on base is also number one, so it's it matches up perfectly. His weight on base at home, while still good, 397, is not otherworldly. That's like kind of like good Paul Goldschmidt. So um, I still think that like at the end of the day, his raw production will kind of suffer and you know we're going to see like the the overall numbers are going to look a little down but it's good to at least see that like he's not taking a huge step back Uh, i agree with you on that and what this has really done is actually um, a huge bummer i think he might have bounced joey Votto off the all-star team which is crazy to think like a month ago when goldschmidt was not hitting if you look at that first base now i mean freeman's obviously going to be the starter brandon belt's got a really good case they're not going to carry four first basemen Joey Votto might not be there because the Reds don't need him as a rep because Scooter Jeanette's going to make it probably. Eduardo uh, or, you know, Suarez might make it. I'm I'm disappointed by that. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I'm happy to see Goldschmidt hitting again, but I always want Joey. Well, Votto, Votto started slow too, and he's both both those guys are sort of like back to being, you know, themselves. Our final hitter who has turned it around is someone with a very different profile from these guys. This is not the slugger type. This is actually uh, an elite, speedy center fielder. 
with a very good reason for why he's turning things around. Manuel Margot, center fielder for the San Diego Padres, got off to a pretty dreadful start himself. 200, 242, 308 to start the year. That is a 449 weighted runs created plus. That is a 253 expected weighted on base where 330 is the league average. Since May 16th, and this is actually shortchanging him for a reason I'll explain in a second, but since the middle of May, 287, 369 on base, 454 slugging. That is a weighted runs created plus of 126. His turnaround didn't actually start really until the end of May. Uh, So if you just look at June only, he's hit 316 with a 388 on base and a 513 slugging. He's crushing the ball, and he does it while playing elite center field defense uh, for a very interesting San Diego Padres team. If you want to know why, it's very clear. He got off to a really terrible start, and he basically tried to rebuild his swing. And our own AJ Casavell, who is our Padres.com beat reporter, has some quotes from him from last week where Margot said, It was new and it was weird because I'd never hit in any way that wasn't the way I hit before. I've been getting more comfortable every single day and I start seeing the results. That helps me believe in the work and the time and effort I put in. Uh, and there's not a ton of details about the changes he made, but basically, as Casavell put it, Margot's center of gravity shifted backwards and his over-aggressive lunge was no more. That's not an easy thing to do to change your swing in season like that. And if you look at the numbers, they're they're pretty good. His hard hit rate was 37% in April, 27% in May, 47% in June. Ground ball rate, 48% to 63% to 35%. I do feel like we repeat ourselves a lot in terms of hit the ball hard and don't hit it on the ground. And not everybody should do that. But if you are capable of doing that, that's a really good player. And Manny Margot, with his defense, he does not need to hit like Paul Goldschmidt to be a valuable player. Yeah, the one thing about Margot I will point out that is uh, disappointing is he is one of the fastest guys in baseball. He ranks... He's uh, like 29 point something in sprint speed. 20th in our sprint speed leaderboard at uh, 29.4 feet per second. Um, but he's 6 for 12 in stolen bases. He's like... You know, how does that happen? And like the minors, you know, in 2016, he was 45 for 57. The year before that, he was 41 for 56, 42 for 57. So like he's been a huge base stealing guy, but obviously he's not really figured out. Even last year, though, he was 17 for 24, which is okay. Uh, but he clearly hasn't figured out exactly the rhythms of base stealing at the major league level. So these four guys who got off the terrible starts, Margot, Goldschmidt, Carpenter, Morales, who do you feel most confident in going forward, maintaining positive offensive value? I mean, this year, Goldschmidt. Goldschmidt, yeah. <laughs> um, But Margot is sort of showing signs, again, as you said, like the Padres are, are kind of interesting. And this yeah. is uh, this is like, okay, this guy's kind of coming around. And that's he could be a huge piece for them. 23, still 23 years old. He's 23 years old. And I feel like now that we're talking about the Padres, nobody talks enough about their bullpen. Brad Hand might be like their fourth best reliever right now. It's insane how good their bullpen is. And they've been doing, quote unquote, bullpenning. Yeah. And it's served them well. With a lot less fanfare than the Rays, but we'll get with more get more on that in a second. First, it is time for a segment we like to call Making the Complex Simple, presented by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Today's topic is Mike Trout. Every day's topic should be Mike Trout. Some Trouts do Mike Mike Trout Mondays. Some sites do Mike Trout Mondays. There's enough Mike Trout topics for seven days a week. And what we looked at this week is that Mike Trout is carrying the weight of his team in a way that we really haven't seen in about 50 years, except for Mike Trout himself. Uh, I just feel like there's not enough ways to say that Mike Trout is great and fantastic. He's literally the best player in the game, and we're seeing him at the peak of his talents, uh, even though that the Angels uh, have been on a bit of a slump. Yeah, this it's, week. it's getting it's, getting late early out it's, there. It's, it's rough. The AL playoff picture is getting pretty clear, and it's not even July. Yeah. I mean, I think we said this last year, and uh, I'm trying to think of who made a run. Twins did. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? It's still, but. No, I'm calling it. It's over. <laughs> 
it's over the the, uh, I mean, the Mariners are on pace for 100 wins. The, the only uncertainty remaining is whether the Mariners go to New York or Boston for the wild card game. I guess I can get the Although I uh Matthew Leach uh one of our writers here made an interesting point in that there's like a little bit of like could be some some sort of trickery at play that like you could argue that finishing with the second best record in the American League is better than finishing with the best record. Go on. Because like you end up basically if you get the second best record, you line up against the Indians who are not I mean they've got a strong pitching staff, starting pitching staff, oh, but they're you not avoid a great the wild card. You avoid the wild card team. <laughs> that's you avoid you you potentially avoid the Yankees uh, or Red Sox. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for you. I was talking to uh Jordan Schusterman, who's one half of the Cespedes family barbecue and is a Mariners fan. And he didn't have a good answer to this. As everyone knows, the Mariners have gone the longest in uh, American professional sports without a playoff appearance. If they get into the playoffs and they go on the road in the wildcard game and lose, and they never get a home game. Does that count? No. I say no. I mean, technically it does, but I say no. If you don't get a home game, if you don't get the fans out there, then it, I don't think it counts. Anyway. Anyway, Mike Trout. Let's, let's, let's make the complex simple with Mike Trout. Uh, Mike Trout, as I hardly need to tell any of you, is having a fantastic season. He's hitting 323, 458, 645 slugging. His 357 expected weight on a base is either fourth if you set the minimum to 200 plate appearances or second if you set it to 300 plate appearances. J.D. Martinez is the only one who tops him in both. Uh, he has 95th percentile speed, 29.2 feet per second, where 27 is average. And he's upped his defense, as we talked about in depth on the show a couple weeks ago. He is essentially the perfect player. He has been fantastic. And I wanted to know... What does that mean in the context of other winning teams? Like, you know, LeBron just went to the playoffs and everybody said, well, he carried an okay Cavs team, right? I don't follow basketball. I assume that's like the proper way to put it because that's what the story has said. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike Trout has 6.6 wins above replacement. This is always going to be the baseball reference version. The Angels as an entire team have 19.5 wins above replacement. So Mike Trout has 33% of the entire team's wins above replacement. Now, compare him to some other great players on great teams. Mike Trout is 33% of the Angels' uh, war. Jose Ramirez has only 21% for Cleveland, even though he's having a great year. They've got four other three-win players. Uh, Jose Altuve, 12% for the Astros. Aaron Judge, 15% for the Yankees. The next closest for any winning team is Trey Turner, who has 23% of the Nationals. Now, you might ask why of winning teams, because it's not that interesting that Whit Merrifield and his 1.5 war has like 40% of the Royals total because the Royals are going to lose 115 games this year. So we just set it to of winning teams because I think that's what's interesting. How can you carry a winning team? So if you look at Mike Trout's 33% of his team's share and you look at it through history. So we looked at over 1,300 team seasons since 1901 where the team had a 500 record or better. Mike Trout currently has two of the top five seasons and three of the top 75. The first two seasons are Rogers Hornsby, arguably the greatest or second greatest second baseman who ever lived, who had 39% of his team's total in 1917, 35% in 1922. The third best season by this metric is Carly Shremsky for the 1968 Red Sox. He had almost 34% of the share of his total team war. Behind that right now is Mike Trout, 33.3%. Behind him is Mike Trout, 2015, where he had 32%. If you look up and down, this list, I looked at like the top 50 here. It's unbelievable how many Hall of Famers are on this list. Uh, also on the top 10, there's two Ted Williams seasons. If you look at the top 20, there's two Ty Cobb years, three Barry Bond seasons. Like This is a list literally of the best and most valuable players in baseball who are carrying, let's call them, unimpressive teams to contention. 
Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think this year the the way the voting has sort of changed. I think he's probably we've been doing these like MVP watch polls on our site, and our voters have been almost unanimously voting Trout as AL MVP. It'll be interesting to see if the thinking changes. Um, if they fall way out and Mookie Betts continues to perform the way he is, or even J.D. Martinez for that matter. But like, I mean, when you look at it, Mark Trout is in his seventh full season, should already have five MVP awards. Yes. Um, last year, you couldn't give it to him because he didn't play enough, even though like on a rate basis, he was the best player. Yeah, um, But like, we all know, like, okay, he lost the first two years, his first two full seasons lost to Miguel Cabrera. One of those was the Miguel Cabrera triple crown year. But we all know in terms of total value, he crushed Cabrera. Even 2015, when Josh Donaldson won, um, he had the same number of homers, higher batting average, higher OBP, <laughs> higher slugging. Um, and of course, the you know the Blue Jays won, and Donaldson had the narrative. He was traded. He had a great year, but like Trout was better. One of those uh, Miguel Cabrera years, I don't remember which one it was. There were some writers who uh, very actively said, "Well, I went with Cabrera because his team made the playoffs, and Trout didn't." And the way it worked out, the Angels actually had like one or two more wins than the Tigers did because yes. their division was so difficult, and that made my head explode. But it's it's just crazy to think that like he should have were you working on his sixth MVP award in his seventh season. He's twenty six years old. Yeah, I mean it's it's similar. Frankly, it's it's kind. Of, you mentioned LeBron. It's kind of similar to LeBron. Like James Harden won an NBA MVP this year. It's like obviously like we if anyone who watches it, it's like obvious LeBron's the best player, but like people get bored of like, they look for reasons not to vote for people. So it's like LeBron should have 10 MVPs. He has like, I think LeBron has three MVPs. Yeah, I think it's been like three years since Mike Trout won a player of the week award. <laughs> we are bored by his greatness. Now, what do you think is the threshold? Like the angels have really had a rough time lately. I actually, this might not even be valid in a couple of days. Cause they're like one game over 500 at this point. Um, how far do you think the team can sink where Mike Trout would maybe not win the MVP. I think he's going to win it unanimously, honestly, but there's um, got to be a threshold. I mean, if they... F- I'm trying to think of, like, if they finish below... If they end up finishing below the... They might be in fourth place, right? Like, Oakland is... Uh, Oakland's a, Oakland's two, two, two games behind them. Yeah. Yeah, I think they could easily finish in fourth. If they if they don't win 75 games... Oh, they'll... I, well, yeah, they'll win 70. They'll... They'll probably win 75 games. Um, I guess that Cozar just got hurt. He's basically out for the year. Yeah, I don't even uh, know if they have any sellable assets. The thing is, you almost wonder if they become sellers, but it's like, if they're not selling Trout, what are they selling? They're in, it's not going to be Cole Calhoun. Yeah. They just signed Justin Upton. Uh, Kinsler's not doing that great. You probably aren't going to trade Simmons. Uh, yeah, that's grim. Maybe a reliever or two. Yeah, so it's... it's I, I mean, it, uh, as it always depends on the BBWA awards, also it sometimes depends who gets asked to vote, because it's, it's 32 people. Right. Or... or 15, uh, 30 people. It's two per two, two per market. Right. So um, two per AL market. So we'll. I think he's going to win. I think it could end up being a lot closer. I think, the, but people have not really gotten thinking about like the quote unquote narrative yet. And like Mookie Betts has had a pretty amazing year. He's missed time though. True. If true. Um, and also the fact he and JD Martinez might actually like siphon some support from each other, which could hurt uh, either one of their cases. I really, really look forward to arguing about this uh, come the end of September. That segment was Making the Complex Simple, presented by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage is simple, so you can understand the details and get approved in as few as eight minutes. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently at rocketmortgage.com. Based on a sample of Rocket Mortgage clients who met qualifying approval criteria and specific loan requirements at the time of application, results may vary. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. We are going to finish off with the Tampa Bay Rays, who, as you may have known, have had a ton of pitching injuries. When they uh, got to the ballpark on May 19th, 
They had a 4.45 ERA. That was the eighth worst in baseball. A couple of days later, they traded Alex Colome to Seattle. Chris Archer got hurt. Uh, Jake Faria got hurt. But since that day, they've had the best ERA in baseball, 2.87 ERA. They've had the lowest opposing batting average, the lowest opposing on base percentage, the lowest opposing slugging percentage, the lowest weighted on base, first in ground ball rate. Why did I pick May 19? That is when Sergio Romo took the mound to be the first quote unquote opener. Now, it's pretty convenient to say, well, man, the opener works really well. Uh, everybody should do it. That's why the Rays have been good. And I want to say, I, I love the idea of the opener. I think it's totally valid, uh, and I, I hope it works out. I just think it's maybe a little premature to say, this is why the Rays have been good. There there have been a lot of other reasons. I know you know nobody pays attention to the Rays, but they've been a really interesting team, I think, and not just because they put relief pitchers at first base uh, for a batter, as they did the other night with Jose Alvarado. Uh, the Rays have been... Pretty uh, interesting, I think, and there are several reasons unrelated to the opener. First and foremost, wow, Blake Snell has been really good. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> really good. I think we talked about it in the last podcast I was on, so we don't need to go too far into it. But yeah. like, he's become the pitcher he was supposed to be when he was just, like the top pitching prospect in baseball. I think. What did we say at the time? I looked at uh, the best games of the year by expected weighted on base, right? Yeah, that's what it was, and he, was. and he had the best yeah. at the time. Uh, since the Tampa Bay started with the opener a month ago, only Atlanta's Mike Fultonevich has a lower ERA than Blake Snell, 127. Uh, Snell has the fourth lowest hard hit rate, career high strikeout rate, career low walk rate, and it, you know, if you ask him why, well, a year ago at this time, he was in the minors, he came back and he changed his location on the rubber, and he said that's been a big deal. So I think we can both agree Blake Snell being an ace, big part of why the Tampa Bay Rays are not allowing runs. What I also wanted to know was, you know, what is what's changed about the guys that they've had? So there are 13 pitchers who have appeared for the Rays, both before the opener and after the opener. That group hasn't changed as much as you think. Strikeout rate's about the same, around 23% before and after. Walk rate's up a little bit from 8% to 9.5%. Hard hit rate's about the same, 34%. On base percentage is about the same, around 300 Batting average of balls in play, about the same, around 280. That's a whole lot of things that haven't changed before or after. But here's what has changed. The slugging percentage has collapsed. Before the opener, before May 19th, these 13 pitchers had allowed a 396 slugging percentage. Now it's 339. That's enormous. Now why is that? Their ground ball rate has jumped from below 42% to over 49%. I think that's really interesting because it seems to me like they've actually been trying to do that. If you look at the pitch usage, again, just of these 13 pitchers who appeared both before and after, so we're comparing them to themselves. They've really stopped throwing uh, as many four-seam fastballs. Before, they were throwing almost 40% four-seamers. Now it's down to about 34%, and a lot of those pitches have turned into sinkers or two-seamers, which went from below 9% to basically 15%. You know, they've made some other slight changes, fewer sliders, more changes in curves, but they've really seemed to be trying to get ground balls, and when you look at this team, I think it makes sense. They have a really good infield defense. They've got, like, shortstops playing all over the place, when they don't have first basemen who are pitchers. But for the most part, they've got a really good uh, infield defense, and they're taking advantage of this. It's, uh, I mean, they're the Rays, right? This yeah. is like what the Rays do, but it's, it's they, they find different ways. They, they, they have no sort of like public pressure to like, you know, be good essentially. So they are able to kind of like work around the margins and try things. And, you know, they change their pitch, pitch, pitch usage over the course of the season. And like, it, it, you know, they haven't had the success they had like 10 years ago, but it, it's you still see why they're kind of competitive and always interesting. Yeah, I mean, they got kind of killed over the winter because they traded some guys. I never thought Jake Odorizzi or Alex Cobb were that good. They don't seem to be missing these guys that much. Um, what I'm really fascinated by is Chaz Rowe. I love Chaz Rowe so much. If you've ever watched his slider, it's the most fun pitch in baseball. I don't understand how physics even allows this pitch to do the things that it does, but he's been kind of a journeyman because he's had just the one pitch, more or less. 
Well, this year, he has doubled his sinker usage. He's added 15 points to his grounder rate. He's allowed only one run in 15 games since May 19th. Now he's a guy who can get ground balls and throw his ridiculous slider. That's that is a weapon now. Yeah, no, he's 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 fun to watch. It's I mean, there's he's one of these guys like made for like the uh, pitching ninja. Yeah, oh, it's absolutely right. Uh, a couple other things about the Rays. So they've changed some of the pitchers. They've really uh, they had two guys who pitched before the opener who have not pitched afterwards. Andrew Kittredge uh, is kind of terrible at an ERA of almost ten in sixteen innings. Yanni Chirinos is pretty good in six games, but he got hurt and demoted. He hasn't been seen since April. They've found some guys since then out of absolutely nowhere and made them useful. Wilmer Font is on his third team already. He had an 11-32 ERA with the Dodgers, an ERA of nearly 15 with the A's, and now with, with uh, Tampa Bay, his ERA is 164, which he credits in large part to moving his position on the rubber to the third base side. Vidal Nuno has a 156 ERA in 17 innings. Diego Castillo, who's a rookie, a 146 ERA in 12 innings. And Nathan Ovaldi, who got hurt on the eve of this season, uh, has allowed a 271 weighted on base in six games. All four of those guys have weighted on base marks better than Kittredge or Trino. So you can see there's a lot of things that are going into why the Rays are performing, none of which have anything to do with the opener. Uh, yeah, no, I don't want to say the opener isn't valuable. I think it is. I just think it's it's probably too soon. Like, what's the opener supposed to do? It's supposed to make starting pitchers or maybe not starting pitchers, the guys pitching the most in that game face fewer uh, third time through the order hitters. It's just they've had nine relief appearances of at least five innings. So that kind of negates that a little bit. And it's too soon. They've done it like, I don't know, 13 times that's we probably wouldn't be talking about this if they weren't number one and everything it's sort of like it's sort of i mean to me the the way to do it is to sort of shield shield your mediocre starters from having to face lineup second and third time to the order that's essentially what you're but that hasn't come through yet in the data yeah no it's but it's i mean what's interesting is as i think you point out is like that their their era is a lot higher in the Opener games, of course, those are the games Blake Snell doesn't pitch. Right. So it's like you're like. <laughs> well, I think they, I guess the right way to, to look at it is in the opener game. So they've had a 364 ERA. What would we have expected their ERA to be from their lesser starters in those games? And that's a really hard question to answer. I would say, I mean, to, to, to that, when you phrase it that way, to me, it's working. Because I, think I would so. think that they're, in, you know, if they were forcing, I don't even know, you know, I don't even know who their number one five Well, it would have been like Brian Yarborough. And like Matt Andreessy, it forced them to be their team ERA would have been higher than that if they were forcing those guys. They were essentially playing the normal model of like you have to pitch at least five innings. Yeah, and I guess that's a good way to put it. I don't want to say the, the opener is not working because it, it might be, and I, I hope it does because I really love the idea. But I think I want to say they're not pitching well because of the opener. I guess this is like twisting yourself into word pretzels here. Yeah, and there, there was a um, Jason Stark had a very good piece in the Athletic about this where he talked to a lot of people in the industry about like what the opener means for the future of starting pitching, you know, there was like one anonymous quote up top from an exec who was like, you know, the excitement of a lot of games is built on the starting pitching matchup. So if we like kind of take that away from baseball where it's like, oh, I'm going to see, you know, uh, Scherzer versus Verlander tonight, like what we're losing something from that. I, I mean, it's fair. I think it's fair. I'm not sure I accept that premise because with the very exception of like Pedro in 1999 yeah. and like Felix at his peak, there's like very little evidence of like attendance spiking right. because of who's pitching. I also don't think that's the the Rays' problem. They need to win games. Yeah. Like if we want to change that from like a higher level, sure. And then there was a there was a. I mean, you know, obviously Matt Silverman, uh, the Rays GM, is going to defend what he's doing. But he had a, well, I thought it was a good quote. He said, "You know, now you have fans coming to the game saying, really, Sergio Romo is starting. What's this? <laughs> you know, I think it actually adds some intrigue in every opponent that we're playing. Their TV and radio guys are spending a lot of time talking about it. It's something that's now part of the conversation of baseball. You know what he's right. We probably wouldn't be talking about the Rays right now yeah. if not for that. I liked uh, he asked Andrew Friedman, uh, obviously former Rays executive and now with the Dodgers. 
who said, I don't believe there are 150 starters, which he means by, you know, five per team on planet Earth that can reach a certain threshold of performance. The ones who do are very helpful to the team's winning games. What about the ones who fall short of that bar? Instead of crossing our fingers, I think there are more proactive ways to put your team in a better position to help win baseball games. I think that's perfect. You're always going to have the Verlanders and the Scherzers and the Kershaws. Like, we've said this for years. The future of pitching is probably going to be, you know, two or three, like, quote-unquote, starters on your team and you know maybe one or two situational relievers and then in the middle a bunch of guys who can get five six seven outs when you need them to that seems the most effective way yeah to to me actually i think a good analogy for another sport and i usually don't like cross-sport analogies but i'm going to make one here um is uh my second of the show in fact um is it reminds me sort of like uh, the nfl with running backs for so long it was like oh you have to have a running back like every team needs to have running back at 300 carries a year like that's how you win a super bowl and then teams started realizing, like, no, we'll do running back. Like, running backs, high rate of injury. Like, it's really hard to keep a running back on the field. So, like, yes, every so often your Ladanian Tomlinson comes around and, like, you can build. This is a franchise running back. But, like, most teams are like, you know what? We don't have that guy, so we just kind of have to mix and match and use guys based on situations. Some guys will go in passing situations, running situations, and that's become the new normal. Like, anyone who plays fantasy football knows, like, there's, like – five or six running backs that go quick in a fantasy football draft because those are like the workhorses that still get, you know, 300 carries a year. But after that, it's like, well, there aren't enough guys to go around, so you kind of have to figure it out another way. And I think that's what's going to happen, as you said, with starting pitching. It's like there still will be the big names. And, yes, maybe there's something lost when it's like Max Scherzer against Sergio Romo. Romo, But, like, Max Scherzer against Ryan Yarbrough is not exciting either. So, like, what are we really losing? Like, we're still going to get Max Scherzer versus versus Blake Snell every so often, and that's what we're excited about. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these guys are still going to get their innings just in a different order. Uh, I always like to see interesting, innovative things in baseball. And for those people who say, well, this isn't what it looked like 20 years ago. Well, 20 years ago, it didn't look like what it looks like 20 years before that, and so on, and so on. Baseball is always going to be uh, evolving and innovating. Yeah, and I think that's one thing that baseball fans continue to struggle with. because there's always this lamenting of the game changing where I feel like fans of other sports kind of just roll with it and be like, okay, games evolve. Like, let's let's just, you know, let's let's evolve with it. And there's this, like, hand-wringing that baseball has to stay the same. And it's, it's interesting what's happening. And I think that, like, you know, teams shifting or trying new reliever strategies, to me, that's a lot more interesting than every team trying to win in the exact same way. <laughs> I agree with you uh, totally, and that's what we're here for. This is our show. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.